Welcome to the No-Till Farmer Podcast, brought to you by the Andersons. I'm Michaela Faulkner, Managing Editor at No-Till Farmer. In today's episode of the podcast, Assistant Editor McCain Vogel talks with Maria Teresa Tancredi and Michaela Lovers, researchers at the University of Georgia who created a cover crop incentive tool to help no-tillers easily navigate the federal and state incentive programs available to cover the costs of cover crops. My name is Maria Teresa Tancredi. I usually go by Maria. I'm a third year PhD student at the University of Georgia. I am originally from central Italy, where I grew up. I grew up on a small family farm, more like a homestead type of situation, uh, where my family has some livestock, a garden, some fruit trees. Uh, we mostly produce food for our own consumption. Um, my grandparents were proper sharecroppers, um, and after they retired, they focus primarily on our family farm. My parents are not farmers, but they've always helped out around the farm uh, because that's where we all lived as a family. But I actually became interested in agriculture only after moving away from home and moving to college. And part of it was probably the fact that all of a sudden I had to buy food at the store. I couldn't just go outside and grab you know, harvest some vegetables and things like that. And so I started thinking more about where does the food that I eat come from? And I became interested. And then while I was um, getting a undergraduate degree in environmental sciences, I was lucky to be able to attend courses on animal production systems and also do a small project on dairy production in the Italian Alps. And that's where I really understood that I wanted to learn more about agriculture. And so I decided to do a master's degree in sustainable agriculture. That's how I became, decided to come to the U.S. So in 2019, I moved to the, to the U.S. for that program, which was a dual master's degree between the University of Georgia and the University of Padova, which is a university in Italy. Um, and then while I was Doing that degree, I was able to do a course in social sustainability of food systems with Dr. Jennifer Thompson. Um, and I realized that I was very interested in that part of agriculture. And so once I graduated, um, I decided to stay and work with her on a PhD. So now I'm working with her, studying with her um, and learning about farmers' opinions on cover crops and impacts of different policies on farmers' adoption of conservation practices. I'm also a sort of a farm kid once removed, if you will. My dad grew up on a farm out in Kansas, um, and he is not a farmer professionally, but he is an agricultural researcher. So we've always been kind of about growing stuff. Um, we're very much on the, the plant side of things. Um, and when I was in, so I'm from Tifton, Georgia. So I'm from sort of Southwest Georgia, uh, the land of cotton and peanuts. And, uh, when I was in high school, I was like, I'm going to get out of here. I'm, I'm not coming back. I'm going to go be, you know, a bench, uh, biotechnologist and I'm going to go live somewhere where there's people and stuff to do. Um, and then I got to college and was like, oh, no, this is actually really cool and really important. Uh, just kidding. 
and ended up with an ag degree. And so beginning of my senior year, I realized I was doing a lot of uh, wet lab bench science and realized that, hey, you know what? People are actually a lot more fun to do research about than cells and stuff. So I also now work with Dr. Jennifer Joe Thompson at UGA in the Social Sustainability of Agri-Food Systems Lab, which is kind of a mouthful. And so I'm working with Jen and Maria on this um, cover crop adoption big project, which we'll get into a little bit later. And I realized that I like growing stuff and I like talking to people. And so that's kind of why I'm here. I think it's really interesting, just kind of what brings people to where they're at in the world of agriculture today. So love to start with all that. Let's talk a little bit more about the Precision Sustainable Agriculture uh, PSA group, and then also getting into what Michaela sort of teased a little bit with this cover crop tool. Yeah. So uh, as you said, it's Precision Sustainable Agriculture PSA. And so what that is is a network of several universities, um, farmers, industry reps, nonprofits that work with farmers, a couple of uh, agency folks. And so PSA works to develop tailored cover crop knowledge, information, and outreach to support the effective adoption of cover crops at scale. So it's a bunch of folks looking at cover crops from a bunch of different perspectives. So there are six different teams as part of PSA that focus on these different aspects of cover crop adoption. And so there's the on-farm and on-station teams that are doing experimental field research. There's the extension team, the education team, and the technology team. And they do things like develop decision support tools, which is mostly what we'll be talking about today. And then the social science team, which includes us. we work on integrating farmer perspectives into the research in multiple ways, including direct farmer feedback on our cover crop experiments and farmer interviews and surveys. And PSA is supported by the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. So got some grants. And then, so this cover crop tool, I want to kind of get into the details of this because this is something that I think our listeners are going to be really interested in. Um, how did that kind of come about? What was like the, the first moment that this idea kind of sparked from, and if you want to just kind of give an overview of what this tool does. For my research, I travel around the country and I interview farmers to learn more about their opinions on, uh, cover crops. And in the last year, I've had a chance to travel to nine different states. Um, I was able to go to Maryland, Vermont, and Pennsylvania for the Northeast, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina for the Southeast. And then uh, this spring, I was in Missouri, Iowa, and Ohio for the Midwest. Um, And I was doing interviews with farmers, and we were talking about several different things, uh, both farmers that use and don't use cover crops. And one of the things that I noticed is that across the board, sometimes no matter how long they had been using cover crops, um, there was a lot of confusion about what kind of financial incentives are out there for farmers um, in trying to support them in their use of cover crops. Um, I noticed that sometimes farmers were not aware that there were programs available to them. 
or if they were aware that the programs were available, um, they were usually showing some level of frustration because the information around the programs were not clear enough. And so last fall, um, I was I had decided to do an independent study with a professor at UGA. His name is Dr. Nicholas Basinger. He's our weed specialist at the University of Georgia. Um, and I wanted to do that study to learn more about the agronomic side of cover crops so that I could better understand what farmers were telling me um, and what worked and didn't work on their use of cover crops. And I decided to use that time um, to create a very basic version of this tool. Um, and so what I did was basically look at federal and state programs that um, support cover crop adoption through different kinds of financial incentives and try to summarize their main points so that that could be uh, one central place that farmers could land on and start getting to start getting a better idea of what's out there for them. So that's where we came up with the idea of the tool. And then how did it kind of evolve from there? So like, what are each of your roles in this project? And um, how did you go about actually compiling all this? Because there's obviously so much information available. And so how did you go about kind of making it uh, something that's going to be readable and, and easy for farmers to access and understand? So the first step was deciding which programs I was going to focus on. Uh, like you said, there's a huge amount of them out there. Um, there's state programs, there are federal programs, there are companies that run private programs, they're um, nonprofits. And so I decided personally to focus um, at federal and state programs. For the state, I looked, I looked only at the states where I conducted the interviews. Um, and so again, that's going to be nine states total. And the first thing that I did was just look back at my notes and see which programs farmers had mentioned to me. And then I looked up um, online. I started writing cover crop programs followed by a state and see what would come up. I looked at past uh, research. I know that some other researchers have looked at a couple programs here and there. And so I tried to see if they were still existing or not. Um, and then because PSA is such a big project, I reached out to several collaborators that I knew uh, were probably going to be familiar with what was available in their, in their states. Um, and so once I had this list of all the programs that I was going to look at, I started thinking about what questions could have been important to farmers? So things like, okay, how does the application process work? Who can apply and who do they need to talk to to apply? Or things like, what kind of support will they receive? Is this a you know discount on crop insurance or is it a cost share or is it a tax rebate? Um, and then things like, what do they practically need to do when they're managing the cover crop to be able to receive the financial incentive. And so I jotted down all those questions and then I started looking through all the different websites out there, uh, made a couple phone calls when I had questions just to try and find the answers to all those different questions. Um, and that's how we created the structure of the table, which is what 
the farmers will see when they check out the website. And one thing that I realized is that I am not able to make this a pretty looking functional tool. So right now it has hopefully useful information to farmers, but it's a little rough to navigate because there's a lot out there. And so this is where Michaela comes in and she's actually going to uh, take ownership of this tool and she can she can talk more about how she's going to use it to make it better for farmers. I'm a part-time grad student and a full-time staff member at the UGA Center for Invasive Species and Ecosystem Health, which is way too long, so we call it Bugwood. Um, And what we do at Bugwood primarily is develop decision support tools. We, We don't really call them that, but in doing this DST work, I've realized that's what we do here. Um, we create web tools to help track and map invasive species. And then we try to make all that data useful and contextualize it so that land managers and policymakers and landowners can make decisions about what to do about invasive species in their area. And so I have this kind of public sector tech background and expertise and so when I started working with Jen um, and working with this with PSA, um, I was really interested in what the tech team is doing to develop DSTs, particularly on the, the front end, the user side of things, like how it works for users. And um, so we realized as I was continuing to work sort of between the tech team and the extension team and the social sciences team that I have a real interest and some skills in sort of doing this, this front end work. And so um, we sort of convinced the director of the team to give us the time and the money to to work through this tool and take it from basically a spreadsheet into a user-friendly tool that's much more convenient, accessible, and has not just the information that we as researchers think farmers need and want, but rather to get farmers and agricultural advisors involved really early on in the design and development process so we can make sure that this tool is useful and has everything that farmers want and not just what we assume they want. So going off of that, what's next for the, for the tool? Where are we at in the process right now? And um, like what's still to come in developing this tool? Yeah, um, great question. I've been spending a lot of time thinking about that lately. So we're using, we're going to be using a co-design process. So that's really just having us and the farmers get together real early on and really center their their needs. Um, And so what that'll look like roughly is that we'll get together an advisory group of owner, uh, growers and agricultural advisors, both public and private. So extension agents, NRCS folks, crop consultants, seed dealers, people like that. And then have small group and one-on-one discussions. And so we'll start by asking about, you know, initial information about, hey, what do you guys want and need? 
what kind of like how do you think you want to access it what do you think you want on it what is missing right now um what kind of explanations do you maybe need for these different programs or you know application processes stuff like that so then I'll take that initial information, kind of go back to the social science and tech teams and think that through some more and then um, make, you know, a prototype or a mock-up kind of thing and then take that back to the advisory panel and have some more conversations about what do you like, what do you not like, what do you think could make this better? Um, Because the real, the goal here is to make something that is useful and that farmers and ag advisors are going to want to use because a lot of researchers kind of have this idea of like, oh, build it and they will come. And no, it doesn't really work that way. You have to build something that people like and want to use. So, so it's, it's a way to get a lot of information, really complex information kind of condensed into something usable because farming is a job all by itself and farmer, we can't expect farmers to also be reference librarians and ecologists and soil scientists. Like that's why PSA exists is to make stuff for people to be able to parse that information. And if, if I can add one thing um, just to, maybe make it clear the tool is out there and there, you know, there's information that farmers can already look at. So it's, there is something for you guys to check out. (laughs) Um, And like Michaela said, um, this work is going to take place in a more structured way, but we already put out there a couple of ways to give us feedback because we know that the way the tool is right now is not perfect. It's definitely far from perfect. Uh, but we want to make it, like Michaela just said, as much as possible what farmers want. Um, and so we're absolutely welcoming any kind of feedback. We we want everyone to tell us what does not work so that we can make it useful. Yes. And so um, the website is uh, covercrops-incentives.org. My understanding from our, our chief data engineer fancy sounding, um, you call him Brian, you know, um, but my understanding from Brian is that both of those links will take you to the same place. And, um, so on the website is the, the, the tool as it is in a spreadsheet form. So sort of the raw rough form of really just the, the information itself. Um, and then we'll have a place where you can email us. Um, if you want to give some longer form feedback, um, a little quick little form, like three question form. Um, and we're working on setting up a voicemail only phone number so that you can call us and leave voice feedback. So that'll all be right there on the website. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, The Andersons. A thoughtful, well-designed nutrient management program is essential to maximize crop productivity. Providing the right nutrients at the right time throughout the growing season is key to achieving high yields. The Anderson's High Yield programs make it easy to plan season-long nutrient programs for corn, soybeans, wheat, and many specialty crops. Visit andersonsplantnutrient.com highyield 
to get instant recommendations to improve your nutrient efficiency and yields. Now let's get back to the conversation. Another thing I want to talk about is some of these programs that already do exist and just get a better understanding of kind of what they have to offer. I know there's different federal programs and different state programs. So uh, maybe it'd be helpful just to kind of hash out some of the main differences uh, in some of these programs and just kind of a brief overview of, of what these programs look like as they are right now. So one of the main benefits of the federal programs is that um, they change a little bit from state to state. There is a little bit of flexibility in that but they're available to every farmer in every state. Uh, and so if you're somewhere that doesn't have a state program like Georgia or Ohio, um, right now your state doesn't offer a program. So one benefit of the federal programs, um, and there are a couple, and I'll let Maya talk a bit, Maria talk a bit more about um, what those actually look like, but there's the big benefit of everybody can, everybody has access to some programs. And like the cons, of course, of that is that um, some states, states can also have really wildly different um, payouts. So for instance, Maryland, the base pay in Maryland is $55 an acre. And there's a different Maryland program that pays 115 while Iowa's cost share program is $25 an acre. So that's a huge difference. Um, but some of these states have multiple options, like Iowa again has two different programs. And so they can choose sort of which program is better for them, which is more convenient or fits their needs better. Um, so it's kind of always pros and cons with having multiple options with having only one option. So. Yeah, for the state programs, um, sort of like what Michaela was just saying is uh, some states offer only one kind of program, but states like uh, Maryland and Iowa, for example, offer two different kinds. Um, in Iowa, for example, farmers can decide to apply for a cost share program or a um, crop premium discount. Um, they don't pay the same, but they're quite different in the way that they work and a little bit also in the requirements that they have. And so I personally like this because it means that it gives farmers more flexibility to choose what program uh, fits better with their schedule and their targets and their goals. Um, and so that's a nice way to, to look at that. Um, on top of it, one big con that I found uh, about federal programs is that I feel like usually those are the ones that tend to have the least clarity when it comes to information, which is, in my opinion, a big issue. Um, I had to navigate several different websites and web pages to find the information that I wanted to. Um, and it, again, for me, maybe it was even different because I was trying to look at them at a federal level. And then if one just looks at their state, it could be a little bit narrower, but there's still a lot to navigate through. And one and of you the, mean like a federal program because you access federal programs like through your local or state agent, right? Yeah. Well, what I mean is that if you look at, um, let's say, for example, the Equip program on NRCS, you can find a general description for Equip on the USDA page, but then you can also 
look at your USDA NRCS page for your state. And there you're going to also have a description of EQIP, which for 90% of the content lines up with what it's on the federal. But there are a couple details that states can decide to implement differently based on their targets. Uh, one example, one very simple example is um, with EQIP, in, not in every state, farmers are allowed to graze their clover crops. Some states let farmers do that, others don't. And so that would be a difference that a farmer would have to find out at their state level, even though the program is federal, if that makes sense. And yeah, one other fairly big barrier with the federal programs was that I came across several links. Like, if you want more information on, you know, this one thing, click here. And then that link would send me either to a page that was had not been updated for several years or the page wasn't even there anymore. And so that was a little frustrating because, again, it sends you down this rabbit hole. And another thing that I'm, I'm going to talk about it as a pro for a, stether, for a state program is that when it comes to state programs, I feel like it's usually a little bit easier um, to find out upfront how much in dollar amounts farmers are going to receive for the practice. Um, even when it's a tier system, usually it's explained, I feel like, a little bit better than when it comes to federal programs. And so... Um, I think that's also an important parameters that farmers are going to look at when they decide if they want to invest time um, and energy in applying for the programs or not. And so having kind of examined all these different programs and, and comparing them all, and maybe there isn't a, a good answer to this, but I'm curious, what would the perfect cover crop incentive program look like to you? Or would it really just kind of vary too much from farmer to farmer based on you know, what their schedule is and, and what their production looks like? I feel like there's not going to be a perfect incentive program out there, probably. Um, and it's partially because uh, from what I'm learning from my farmers' interviews is that different farmers like different things. I mean, we think of farmers as one group, but they're like, I mean, they're people. They like any one of us. They like different things. Um, and so I think we'll always have some farmers that might like a cost share type of support better and others that might prefer going through something like crop insurance discount or receiving a premium on their cash crop that they grow uh, on, a, on acres where they also use cover crops. But from this said, um, I think there are some points that I hear farmer talking over and over again that would make an incentive program a better program. Maybe not a perfect program, but a better program. Um, for example, I think one of the things that are important to farmers is that the application process should be easy to understand and simple to fill out. Um, something that, again, I hear from growers is I don't want, I don't have time to spend hours or days or even weeks to fill out a form um, because I'm busy doing other things. Um, or, you know, I had this farmer tell me, I don't know what the right answer to a question is because I know how my farm works, but I don't understand how they're asking certain things. And so making, you know, the application easy to understand and also quick to navigate through is an important thing. 
Similar to this, I think it's important to have clear information about the requirements so that when farmers sign up from the programs, they know right away what is expected of them um, and they can evaluate if that's something they want to put up with even before they register for the program. Um, and similarly to that, I think clear deadlines right away so that you know farmers don't just miss out because, oh, there's this awesome program, but I just found out about it and it closed a week ago. So if those could be and I speak mostly for deadlines for application, but not only. I've, for example, heard farmers who had taken advantage of a crop insurance discount uh, program telling me, well, I was able to do it last year, but I missed it this year because they changed the deadline and nobody told us. And so I just assumed that it was going to be the same. And so I think keeping deadlines consistent and being very clear about them is also important. Um, and then the last thing that I've heard um, from farmers is I think we need to advocate or make sure that they are brought to the table when those programs are developed or revised. Uh, what I'm hearing is that usually states that have a farmer's advisory panel or maybe a couple farmers that are listened to uh, for the program tend to work better. They tend to make farmers better. Um, they tend to have more, I don't want to say reasonable requirements, but maybe a little bit that way. Um, and also generally, I see frustration and I hear from frustrations from farmers when you know, there's maybe a hundred people panels created for the programs and there's not even a farmer. Um, and yeah, I mean, farmers bring important expertise. And so we should definitely make an effort to include them um, in those conversations. And that's kind of big picture what we really care about doing on the social sciences team of BSA is really getting that farmer perspective and farmer expertise. Um, and that's sort of the whole point of what I'm trying to do with this cover crop incentive tool. So trying to get farmer voices at the table as soon as possible. Well, great. I think you guys have really shown a lot of uh, great insight and great information, a lot of good points being made here. Is there anything else you guys want to talk about uh, involving the tool or involving anything else we've been over uh, before we wrap up? I feel like I'm probably going to be preaching to the choir for <laughs> kind of people that listen to this podcast. But um, I guess one thing that I've heard from a couple of farmers that was very new to me and I hadn't thought about it um, is how big of an impact growing clover crops has on their community. Um, how it's not just about the farmer, but how it makes neighbors happy. It makes landlords happy to see something pretty growing. Um, and I had a couple of farmers telling me that, you know, sometimes we apply manure or during um, harvesting season, we're on the road. And I mean, we're big and bulky, we're blocking the road, we're going slow. And so we feel like we need to do something to the community so that they can be more patient with us <laughs> during those times. Um, and I feel like they feel like cover crops are a way to do that. Like I've heard, for example, Farmer Zoo 
get a chance to grow um, sunflowers or crimson clover, you know, the usual clover crops that have beautiful flowers telling me how they have um, seniors go take pictures or graduating kids go take pictures in the fields or off the fields because they're beautiful. And so, I don't know, I feel like that's something that maybe it's not so important necessarily as, you know, battling erosion or battling uh, herbicide resistant weeds or things like that. But I think it brings a nice addition to clover crops, um, which makes them something, yeah, even more interesting to use. Yeah, that's a really good answer. I think we often, oftentimes we think of the obvious benefits where obviously it's really important for soil health. Um, but yeah, I haven't, I haven't thought of it from a more of a community aspect before. So that is really interesting. And it's true. I was driving by clover fields yesterday and I was like, oh, those are so pretty. I love them. I'm like, oh, the bugs are so happy. I love them. Thanks to Maria Teresa Tancredi, Michaela Lovers, and McCain Vogel for today's conversation. We'll have links to the cover crop tool and other references from Maria and Michaela at no-tillfarmer.com slash podcasts. A full transcript and video of this episode will be available there as well. Many thanks to the Andersons for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. From all of us here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Michaela Bogner. Thanks for listening.